Glad to be here again. Hope it will not be too boring, because I will really talk about what the title says. What to do with Marx today, what are the chances of some emancipatory radical change. So, let me begin. There is an old delicious Soviet joke about Radio Erevan. A listener asks, is it true that the Jew Rabinovich, this is a standard figure in Soviet jokes, won a new car on lottery? The radio answers, in principle, yes, it's true. Only it wasn't a new car, but an old bicycle, and he didn't win it, but it was stolen from him. <laughs> Does exactly the same not hold for Marx's legacy today? Let's ask Radio Erevan, is Marx's theory still actual today? We can guess the answer. In principle, yes. He describes wonderfully the mad dance of capitalist dynamics, which reached its peak only today, more than a century and a half after Marx. But the English so-called analytic Marxist, Gerald Cohen, enumerated four features of the classic Marxist notion of the working class. First, it constitutes the majority of society. Second, it produces the wealth of society. Three, it consists of the exploited members of society. And four, its members are the needy people in society. When these four features are combined, they generate two further features. Five, the working class has nothing to lose, so they are ready to do revolution. And six, it can and will engage, for this reason, in a revolutionary transformation of society. The problem is that none of the first four features applies to today's working class. Uh, which is why features five and six also cannot be generated. Even if some of the features continue to apply to parts of today's society, they are no longer united in a single agent. The needy people in society are no longer the workers, and so on, and so on. The question of the continuing relevance of Marx's work in our era of global capitalism has to be answered in a properly dialectical way. Not only is Marx's critique of political economy, his outline of the capitalist dynamics, still fully actual, one should even make a step further and claim that it is only today with global capitalism that Marx's analysis became fully valid. However, a properly dialectical reversal intervenes here. At this very moment of full actuality, a limitation has to appear. The moment of triumph is that of defeat. Therein resides the properly dialectical paradox. Marx was not simply wrong. He was right. But he was wrong because he was right more literally than he himself expected to be. For example, Marx couldn't have imagined that the capitalist dynamics of dissolving all particular identities 
would affect also ethnic and sexual identities. Also, sexual one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness uh, become more and more impossible. Also, concerning sexual practices, all that is solid melts into air and all that is holy is profaned. So that capitalism tends to replace the standard normative heterosexuality with the proliferation, proliferation of unstable shifting identities or orientations. Today's celebration of minorities and marginals is the predominant majority position. Even old rightists who complain about the terror of liberal political correctness present themselves as protectors of an endangered minority. Or take those critics of patriarchy who attacked it as it is still, as if it is still a, pre a hegemonic position. Ignoring what Marx and Engels wrote more than 150 years ago in the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, I quote, the bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations, end of quote. What becomes of patriarchal family, family values, when a child can sue his parents for neglect and abuse, when family and parenthood itself are de jure, reduced to a temporary and dissolvable contract between independent individuals. So this is my first claim to provoke you. I think that this ongoing struggle between alt-right conservatives and so on and uh, transgender, gay rights, feminist radicals, it's an important struggle, but it's, for me at least, strictly part of today's global capitalist dynamics. I think I was not shocked when, with that just before Trump was elected, when this was the big topic, transgender toilets, special toilets or not, that you look at the list of who is who in, if not in the entire modern corporate America, but in what I call, with all the irony, the new, the new corporate organic intellectuals, those who are even fashionably for socialism today. Bill Gates said we need socialism. Elon Musk said we need socialism. They are the truly dangerous ones, I claim. <laughs> but how, without any problem, they all stood up for transgender. So I have nothing against transgender. On the contrary, I think that to be authentically transgender is to, uh, is to, is an extremely painful, symptomatic, but the most radical position imaginable. And to improvise a little bit in a very Marxist Hegelian way, you know what's my problem with LGBT plus? My reason of critiquing it, but also of fanatically supporting it, is the plus. Usually people take this plus as an empirical plus. The idea is this one, not just binary opposition, male, female, there are other sexual identities, and we cannot ever, we cannot ever be sure that the list is complete. So let's be open and uh, leave a, always add a plus like in the sense of 
empirical sense of our list is not complete, it's possible that there will be other identities, and so on and so on. My theory, and this is just to arise your curiosity, I will not develop it here, my theory is that one can also be directly a plus as such. Plus is a specific identity, which is maybe the closest to what subjectivity is. And I think women are privileged here. In this sense, not in the sense of all biological binary, I believe in feminine subjectivity as paradigmatic form of subjectivity. What do I mean by this? Uh, you know this, uh, what, women are hysterical. Don't misunderstand me. This is for me and for all good Freudians, the highest praise that you can give on them. What is hysteria? Hysteria is the most elementary form of critique of ideology. Hysteria is a certain question, like you. By you, I mean ideology, uh, uh, ideological hegemony, social authority, paternal authority. You are telling me I am this, whatever. Woman, teacher, mother, or two men, worker, whatever. Hysteria is this basic doubt. But why am I what you are saying that I am? This fundamental disbelief in social identification. That's why, but this is another topic. We don't have time for it today. <laughs> That's why I think that this was the dangerous moment, I know it, I was there, of 68, so-called revolution. At that point, it was fashionable to mock hysteria and to be for perversion. Like, hysterics are not really subversive. You provoke a little bit a master, but it's really a call for a better master, while perverts go to the end. As even Freud, unfortunately, says somewhere, perverts do openly what hysterics only talk about and dream about. I think the situation is the opposite one, and Lacan has shown this clearly, that perversion is not subversive. Perversion is just the hidden obverse of every edifice of power. Perverts are ultimately on the side of power. The only thing really undermining power is hysterical questioning. And it's not just a questioning in the sense of objective doubt. You say this, but is it really this? It's subjective doubt, is it? What am I? Am I really what you are saying that I am? And I claim this doubt is constitutive of uh, subjectivity. Okay, back to my main line so that I, get I don't get totally lost. How does ideology function in these conditions? Uh, uh, in these conditions of fluidity and so on. And you should, first, the first thing I advise you is that always be attentive to the form. Take old right. They are really, for me, uh, very dangerous, subversive radicals. They are not really what they, what they, what they, what they claim to be. They are the wrong perverts, as it were. They are something radical is happening. And did you read that book? I'm sorry if I will pronounce the name incorrectly. Angela Nagle, Kill All the Normies. 
I think it's a very profound insight in that book. Namely, the insight that today uh, things are almost enact almost a reversal with regard to when I was young, 60s, 70s, when, you know, we young leftists were provocative, using dirty words, irony, and so on, to unsettle, undermine the, the, the dignity, social stability of authority. No, today, uh, today it's uh, the alt-right which assumed, which adopted, which so successfully reappropriated this old leftist, marginal, subversive, mocking of every authority attitude. And the counterpoint is, the counterpoint is, uh, of course, uh, political correctness. We don't have time to go into it. I, I want, uh, what's the, just let me focus on one thing. What's the mode of ideology at work here? My answer is very simple, cynical ideology, of course, and I'm sorry if I will now repeat some old jokes, but they are crucial. I think the way ideology functions today is that, to give you the formula, and, uh, not only you don't have to seriously believe in ruling ideology, I suspect that it's even a positive condition for an ideology to function, not to take it seriously, not to believe in it. Here, Marx can help us. Well, now I will repeat a point that I repeat again and again, but it's crucial. Here, Marx's theory of commodity fetishism fully works only today. What is Marx, is Marx saying there? Not what you think. Marx is not saying in actual life we are doing one thing, but we live in a fetishist illusion, we uh, don't know what we are doing, we live in idealist uh, nightmare, whatever. No, Marx is saying almost the exact opposite. What he calls commodity fetishism is an illusion, but an illusion which is embodied in the social practice of what we are doing. This is the beauty of Marx. Like, you may be cynical, not take it seriously, but in your social practice, you act as if you believe. If I may repeat an old joke, you're not obliged to laugh because I think that even in this room, I already used it two or three times. <laughs> that old Niels Bohr story. You know, when a friend reproached him, why do you have that horseshoe above the entrance to your country cottage? In Europe, this is a superstitious object. A horseshoe above the entrance to your house means it's meant to keep uh, evil spirits out. Uh, Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. He says, I'm a scientist. Of course, I'm not stupid. I don't believe in it. Then the friend repeated the question, but if you don't believe in it, why do you have it there? Bohr says, because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's ideology today. You know, so, but it, again, ideology is in what things are doing. That's what Marx calls commodity fetishism. Average capitalist is cynical realist. He doesn't believe in any uh, magic of commodities, but he acts as if he believes in commodity exchange and so on and so on. So, again, cynical disbelief is the way things work. 
second point. That's, uh, now I'm trying to give you some arguments about why do I think that ideology is, if anything, more alive than ever today. Second thing, the function of ideology is not to, to, is not to justify the existing state of things, to paint an ideal image like, oh, nonetheless, we live in a basically good, just society. It's, as my friend Alain Badiou put it, the function of, basic function of ideology is not to destroy opposition or actual resistance. Police, others do this. It's to kill hope. This is why, you know, where I encountered ideology at its purest, and I was too confused to answer it properly. I had about a year ago, year and a half ago, in London a debate with the English writer Will Self, who uh, when I painted the dark picture, you know, ecological exploitation, ecological catastrophe, the destruction of natural resources in Africa, and so on, so on, he over-agreed with me. He said, yes, of course, in 40, 50 years we are all doomed, there will be the end of civilization, of course, no problem, no problem. Just, he said, we can do anything. All attempts to change things will just make things worse. I think this is maybe the most efficient ideology today. They don't try to convince you in any, no, it's not so bad, global warming is uh, exaggerated and so on. They agree with everything, just they go to the end. And uh, incidentally, if I understood correctly the latest news from your beloved president, uh, he is already now slowly adopting this line. I think that one of his latest Twitters about uh, global warming, it's no longer, it's not happening, but it's already happened, it's too late to do anything or whatever, you know. This is ideology, to kill hope. Second thing, again, we should reactualize Marx's old formula of religion as the opium of the people but with a specific twist. We have to move further from Marx here. I think that apart from some ridiculous uh, fundamentalisms, Muslim, Christian, or whichever, which obviously function as the opium of the people, in the sense that they enable us to experience today's global capitalism as meaningful through this illusory religious politics. But I think that as Marxists, we should realize that today we have two other new opiums of the people. You can guess which are they. Opium and the people. Exactly. First, opium. Are you aware to what extent, if you read statistics, our daily lives, especially of us here, the generate middle class academic intellectuals, whatever, most of us, the majority, is already taking Xanax or some kind of drugs. So I mean here opium in all the scope of the word. From a calmative you take here and there, to depressants, antidepressants, to real hard drugs. And it's a wonderful contradictory functioning of these drugs. Like, if you are overexcited, first you take drugs to calm you down, and then you take drugs to re-excite you again so that you are not depressive. But the sad thing is, again, the extent to which 
really, for our normal, normal, regular, stable, relatively social reproduction, we already have to rely on biochemistry. It's part of our daily life. And uh, the second opium of the people, again, is, is opium itself. In the sense, even some left, unfortunately, is playing this game. I don't know how you look at this, but in Europe now, the formula of left populism is regaining popularity. The idea is, I call it in a very vicious way, a wrong, perverted me too. Like, the right-wingers have populism, and as if the left is saying me too, why not we also have our own populism? Uh, I think that, uh, unfortunately, this does not work. Why? And here, uh, okay, first for theoretical reasons. I know this is not popular to say, but populism works with clearly designated enemies. You know, populism means, as Ernesto Laclau, the theoretical father of today's political populism, knew very well, populism is not just popular mobilization. It's a mobilization of people against an enemy of the people. And this enemy has to be constructed in a pseudo-concrete, personalized way. They, bankers, immigrants, whoever you want, they can also be combined. Modern populism is doing miracles today. For example, in Europe, so I'm not involved in cheap America bashing. We Europeans, in spite of your Trump, are worse than you, I think. In Europe, you have now a new right-wing racist theory, which is incredible, which goes so far as to claim that the struggle between Palestinians and Israelis is a false struggle, just made to distract us, to obfuscate the fact that they are working together to destroy Christian Europe. <laughs> That's why they say that immigrants penetrating Europe are not Jews, and they are right, you know. I never trusted this simple leftist formula, Nazis had Jews, we have now Muslim immigrants. No, there is one big difference. Uh, Jews were invisible. That was for the Nazis their horror. Invisible in the sense of, you never know where we are, they look like us. Well, the problem with immigrants is, on the contrary, that they are all too visible. Everywhere. The complaint is all the time in, among European races. You cannot even walk on the street to see a covered woman, at whatever you want. But this is the latest fashion now to claim that how is this happening? This cannot be spontaneous. Muslim immigrants entering Europe is part of a plot. Who is behind it? Jews. Soros and so on. They're in reality working together. I think that the tragedy today for authentic, not cheap populist, radical leftist politics, and I'm not blaming here Sanders and his followers. He is not in any meaningful way a real populist for me, is that I will try to improvise, but to be as precise as possible. Uh, it's that uh, 
We can play a political game against enemies and so on and so on. But the true enemy, the ultimate thing that we fight, not that I blame it as the work of the devil, is nonetheless the global capitalist system as such. And the problem is that precisely you cannot personalize it into an enemy in this way. Look at your situation. Of course, the enemy is Trump. But a true leftist should never forget that Trump just filled in the gap of the failure, disintegration of the liberal democratic hegemony. So if you want really in the long term to defeat Trump, we have to introduce at least some radical changes into the predominant left liberal consensus. That's what Trump got it. Uh, uh, a further theoretical point here. I hope I'll be clear enough in formulating it. Uh, is that uh, the further problem? Uh, no, the basic problem is that, you know, Marx, in his idea of uh, uh, proletarian experience, being a proletarian for Marx is not just an objective determination. You are the lowest, exploited, and so on. No, to be a proletarian for Marx means a certain, almost, why not, existential experience of void of subjectivity, everything is taken for you. But at the same time, this very being deprived of all objective content allows you to emerge as a free subject. So, I don't have time to go on to it now, but this is another aspect of Marx that I appreciate more than ever today. Marx would have been, and I think, you may protest, uh, Marx would have been abhorred by the idea that in fighting global imperialism, we should return to some basic, uh, primitive, local experiences, like some of my Brazilian friends are telling me, Literally, I'm not kidding. You know, up the Amazon, there is a tribe where they have some wonderful rituals of tribal meetings which can be used for our postmodern democracy and so on and so on. No, the only way Marx always insisted on did that. The capitalist destruction of all traditional stable forms is absolutely the condition of freedom. We have to pass through it. The problem is this one. Marx still counted that this, that majority, potentially at least, of the people who go through this proletarian experience, the more I work, the more I'm poor, the more I'm deprived, what we call usually alienation or whatever, that this is a point at which the highest theory, in this case for Marx, his own, Marxism, the vision of proletarian revolution, finds an echo or can be rooted in the most concrete existential experience. Marx counted on this link, as it were, between his historical materialist theory, which talks about proletarization, proletarian revolution, and concrete experience of impoverished people. I claim that this exactly is what is getting more and more complex today. 
Unfortunately, and this I consider maybe the greatest danger, the problems we are dealing with today, for example, take ecology, can only in a limited way be transformed or be grounded in our immediate life experience. Okay, you will say, nonetheless, people feel drought. Yes, but not as part of a global capitalism and so on and so on. It gets dispersed. It's typical that it took even long time ordinary people to take ecological topic as a serious problem. I am old enough, I remember, in the, in the 1970s, 80s, when we became aware of ecological problems. For example, I know because I live not in Germany, but close to it. The majority of Western European, especially German trade unions, were ferociously opposed to ecology. They even claimed that ecology, this idea of we have to limit our exploitation of nature, that it's a plot of the ruling classic classes to limit social progress. So, you see what I mean? I mean is that uh, problems we are facing, biogenetic, financial problems, I mean, uh, madness of financial speculations, ecology, and so on. Also, flow of immigrants, if this is a problem for you. The point is that it's more and more difficult to ground radical progressive politics in, in all these levels in concrete life experiences. If you ask me, the first result, even if now Trump recognizes, which I doubt, but nonetheless, uh, the seriousness of the ecological situation, I claim that the first reaction will be America first, or China first, or um, Turkey first, or Russia first, or whatever. It will simply be, okay, it's happening out there, there is a drought in Africa, who cares, let's isolate ourselves, and so on. It will be isolation. It will be the same, the same with, uh, with uh, the flows of immigrants, and so on. The idea would be the world outside of our borders is a mess, let's isolate ourselves. In Europe, I can see this. A couple of years ago, Europe was much more open towards the flow of immigrants. At some point, when Angela Merkel did open, for a short period of time, the borders allowing one million Middle East immigrants to enter Germany, 60 people, 60 percent of the population supported it. Today, no longer. So I always, in a brutal, cynical way, I ask my leftist friends who are telling me we should open the borders to immigrants, I told them, okay, so are you for abolishing democracy or what? Because it's, this was, when I was included in debates in Germany, and I basically, of course, advocated just in a more regulated way, the arrival of immigrants with the basic argument, not humanitarian one, but a more radical one, that, my God, we are responsible for it. The flow of Middle East immigrants is basically the result of American intervention in Iraq, of the intervention, international intervention in Syria, of how international communities screwed it up in Libya, and so on and so on. So... Uh, 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 but uh, the only way to do this is to somehow violate the will of the majority. And people in Germany told me, are you a Democrat or not? 
should we not ask the German people, do they want immigrants or not? Then when I said, okay, but maybe why should only Germans vote and so on and so on? They told me, then what kind of a vote would you organize? Who should vote them? Should the immigrants also vote? Should also, I mean, what I'm just saying is that there is no longer this, let's call it, uh, long-term transparency, that people can be manipulated, but nonetheless, in the long term, what will prevail is a kind of a global solidarity, to use Ernesto Laclau's terms, that we can successfully build a chain of equivalences, women's rights, gay rights, religious rights, uh, uh, immigrants, po third world poverty, all these struggles should be combined into one big struggle. Well, it's easy to say, it's more and more difficult, I claim, to do it. Let me just, not to go into details here, I just want to focus on one problem. This is why, and I see, I wonder to provoke you if you, you will agree with it or not, this is why the big, what is beneath all this is, for me, nonetheless, not that I demonize it, the problem of capitalism. What is our typical story? You get a progressive leader like Lula in Brazil, like Mandela in South Africa, elected, people are enthusiastic, everything works. Then after a couple of years, if not earlier, you confront the real problem. How much do you dare to disturb the, the smooth functioning of capitalism? Capitalism doesn't care about gay rights, transgender, you can have 30 toilets in a row, it doesn't. They will even say, fine, nice, invest, nice new investments, and so on. <laughs> no, the problem is, how much do you dare to do this? And here, I don't blame only liberal left. I blame the left itself. We should here go to the end. I know there are no direct answers now. I know it would be unproductive and crazy to demand now precisely what kind of a new society do we want? But nonetheless, what makes me sad is one fact. And before I conclude, I would like to dwell a little bit on this fact, which is very sad for me that when people claim communism failed, ah, there is one example of communist power which was economically a mega undoubted triumph. It's, of course, China. Are we? Because, okay, you will say capitalism. Yes, but it's capitalism under a tight control of the Communist Party, political control. And here I disagree with my liberal friends who claim, oh, what would have happened if the Communist Party of China would have decided at that point of Deng Xiaoping reforms to make just a step further and allow also political democracy? I'm here terribly sad and resigned. I claim, no, in all probability, it would have been worse. We would not have this type of economic triumph that we have in China. And at least till the time being, this triumph, don't underestimate it, this triumph is real. It's real. Are you aware what is happening? Never in history of humanity was there such a tremendous explosion of new wealth 
created in just 30, 40 years. And the sad thing is that it's precisely, and now the story is repeated already, at least in Vietnam, I was told. Are you aware that, and that's the saddest thing, that this economic triumph is the result of what? We leftists like to, no, we hate two things of modernity. On the one hand, this wild, exploitative capitalism, its brutal dynamics, and so on. On the other hand, strong authoritarian power. Isn't it the said that the most successful model today precisely combines these two features? <laughs> and it works perfectly. And it's not just China. I see the world, unfortunately, moving in this direction. I think not only in China, but all around we have this move towards more authoritarian capitalism. And what I want to say is that it's interesting that some Marxists, like the one who recently died, unfortunately, the Italian Marxist Domenico Lesurdo, along these lines, they even try to rehabilitate Stalin and Mao and China today. They claim that what is happening now in China, China is still socialism because the Communist Party is in power. They allowed a degree of capitalism, but Communist Party controls, so he claims, I don't agree with him, of course, on behalf of the people, so that capitalism is also productive for the people. And he claims that the Cold War go is going on. It's today between China and the United States. And for the first time in history, the socialist camp, that is to say, China has uh, chances of winning. Okay, I will not go into details here, the paradoxes that I see uh, here. I'm just saying that, uh, uh, I'm just saying that, that uh, all this should give us, uh, all this should really uh, give us to think. In the sense of, uh, what are the options today? What can we count on? No wonder that, and this makes me really sad, no wonder that many of my uh, leftist, radical leftist friends, they don't tell this publicly. But privately, all the time, I'm hearing this rumor that the only thing that can save us is a big catastrophe. And with some of them, of course, I will not name them, not to embarrass them. Uh, some of them even think maybe we should risk and hire some terrorists to organize a mega catastrophe, like a nuclear plant exploding, whatever, millions dead. This will then uh, awaken people. Unfortunately, I think that such an, such an approach is, in, is, of course, is in itself a catastrophe. So is the situation lost? What can we do? It's a serious problem because uh, the obvious solution would have been the only thing that works is modest social democracy. Look at Latin America. He is half my friend, I admire him, Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia. What they are really doing is a much more cautious, progressive politics, not disturbing the capital too much, but nonetheless uh, 
using it, collaborating, social progress, they, they succeeded. Before, there was practically an illegal coup against him and his successor. Lula in Brazil did it, and so on, and so on. Uh, with you, with here in the States, with Sanders, and so on. Well, I wish all the best to him. I totally support not only him, but the entire democratic socialist movement. I'm just saying that uh, two things. First, are you aware how modest are really his positions. These are, this is not a criticism of Bernie Sanders. This is just an indication of how our entire political map, its uh, center point, moved to the right. If you look at what Bernie Sanders wants to do and compare it to a moderate European social democracy half a century ago, especially Scandinavian ones, they were much more radical. So again, we live in times where a relatively modest social democracy is already decried as capitalist, even communist madness, and so on and so on. So I am all for it. Let's try. But it's our duty, nonetheless, to claim that this will not solve the entire problem, how should I put it? At a certain point, we will have to change things more and more and more. Why? As I already mentioned, the problems we have today, for example, ecology, I don't think they can be solved at this level of nation state or even, or even local communities recycling their stuff and so on and so on. No, this is all part of ideological strategy. If you want to see ideology at its purest today, I claim, it's this everyday life ecology. Did you recycle your cans? Did you put aside all newspapers? Why? Instead of asking systematic questions, it is addressing you as personally responsible, but what did, you, you know, this is typically in Europe. Uh, for example, you demand radical changes and they tell you, but what about you? Do you know you have all those metals in your iPhone? Are you aware that you contributed to exploiting Africans and so on? So this, this is how today's ideology works. It makes you personally responsible, like what did you do for it? At the same time, it's offering you an easy way out. Recycle, do these, buy organic fruits, whatever, and you contribute to it. That's, for me, ideology at its perfect. Uh, and incidentally, you must know already, some of you, at least my old jokes, that's why when people ask me which is the main ideological apparatus today, I think, although now it's no longer truth, I like to answer Starbucks. <laughs> because it's really ideological genius behind it. You know, now it's no longer so much, but you remember years ago when you entered the Starbucks, you had this, uh, buy our cappuccino, 2% goes for some stupid Guatemala children, whatever, and so on. <laughs> uh, or they, buy, they were selling some stupid water where, again, 1% goes for some resources in Somalia. Why do I make fun of it? Not because I make fun of Guatemala and Somalia, but when already 
the mathematics is so ridiculous. They charge you half a dollar more for those 2% which go there. But you know what's the operation? You worry about ecology, and they make it possible for you not that you can fight for ecology, welfare of third world countries, not by changing your life, but by consuming even more. Because the message is, buy, buy, for example, buy our cappuccino, and you are at the same time helping also third world countries, so that, and that's a true genius, uh, that uh, your ecological duty itself is commodified. It's included into the price. <laughs> that's the ultimate ideology. But what I want to say is that, uh, so should then the answer be simply, and that's the big dilemma, the only serious dilemma, it's not even specifically a Marxist dilemma today. Uh, should we be satisfied by this modest social democracy? The system more or less works, let's just take care of, okay, let's call it global capitalism with a human face. In the same way once we fought for socialism with a human face, you know. Helping the third world countries and uh, ecology, feminism, all that you include. Is this enough? That's why I remain some kind of a more radical communist. Not because I want a dark plot of killing. No, what I'm simply saying is that we cannot cope with our problems in this way. Take again ecology. As I already mentioned, I think, larger transnational actions, bodies that can implement these are necessary. It's clear that we can confront ecological challenges only through, through large international cooperation. It's the same with the other thing with which I'm obsessed almost, although it appears marginal today. Uh, new forms of control, digital controls and brain control. I think that it's no longer science fiction. I have, I'm a dark guy, you know, don't underestimate it. I have connections with some dark laboratories through strange personal links who work for the army and so on. Even in China, I have friends who have, and what I learn is terrifying that the big obsession of the army laboratories today is uh, what you just learn a little bit around. It's a direct wiring of our brain. Like, they are already, it's still very primitive, but the, the path is clear. In an elementary way, it already works. That my brain can be somehow, it's still clumsy, but it works connected with the digital network. And then, on the one hand, it's beautiful. I become almost like God. I think about something, it happens. I learned from a friend in Cambridge that in the last years of his life, uh, uh, Stephen Hawking was already functioning like this. He no longer even needed his uh, finger. He thought and his wheelchair moved forward and so on. Of course, we see what's the problem. The problem is that what goes on comes back in. That is to say that computer can also read our mind and so on, and it's already progressing tremendously with all these nightmarish things that, for example, they can already control neurons which gives orders to move to our 
hands or feet and for example I maybe you even hear this story I repeat it all the time a rat can be connected her brain to a computer you press a button and a rat changes into a remote control car you can direct it and then as my friends told me ah they are doing going a step further they are already discreetly doing such experiments on humans asking the key question how will you as a human experience this being controlled and the answer is very sad let's say i am your rat one of you has a book press the button i walk freely around all of a sudden you control my movements the result is very sad and dangerous uh, it's not that all of a sudden a foreign force takes over no i will still think that i'm acting freely this i think changes everything because our basic human identity and experience of freedom is that of the distinction between inside and outside i am here in my mind for example a vulgar example but very pertinent i can think about you the most politically incorrect dirty sexual things and so on but i am in here there is a gap and this gap is the gap of normal communication of freedom if this gap disappears who knows what will happen i'm not necessarily a cultural pessimist here i'm just saying that i take pretty seriously this term uh, post humanity something new is emerging and what i'm afraid and in this i see an important lesson of a film which was not as bad as many people claim uh, the blade runner 2049 It's the first film about this hypothesis of how we can have post-human capitalism. Maybe humanity, the way we know it, will come to an end, but capitalism can survive. So again, by this problem, ecology, uh, brain control, refugees, and so on, more radical changes will be needed. in what direction i now cannot give you a revolutionary recipe or whatever but to conclude so that i if you allow me another 5 10 minutes so that i return or at least not return i never was there to the title of my <laughs> talk you know i uh, i read a fascinating book i don't think it's in print now but you can uh, uh, download it uh, from i don't even know uh, youtube or whatever curzio malaparte an italian author first a fascist then he moved to the left later in his life in 1930 31 he wrote a book about technique of revolutionary coup d'etat something like that a wonderful and i think correct analysis of of bolshevik revolution he went there and it was just before full onslaught of stalinism so he was able to talk with all the people and so on and so on and he came to this result that the true genius of the revolution was even more trotsky than lenin why now this may sound eccentric because it's not the trotsky you may be heard about lenin was in between when he was Lenin was a strategic genius. He saw a brief opportunity we can grab power now of the revolution. But basically till Trotsky convinced him, converted him, Lenin remained a traditional revolutionary. His idea was gather thousands of workers and soldiers 
attack parliament, uh, imperial castle, whatever, big centers of power. Trotsky had an absolutely ingenious idea, and he did it. He says, but wait a minute, look at the modern state, how it functions. Forget about all that bullshit, the crowd confronting um, the police and blah, blah. A modern state functions through just some eight, nine, ten knots, centers of, technical centers of power, railways, post office, phone, electricity, water supply, and so on. Before you play all those revolutionary games, storming, uh, 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 storming, uh, storming uh, parliament or whatever, in a discreet, quick operation, you should take control of this. And you, you don't need uh, tens of thousands of people. We even know exact numbers. Trotsky said, I need less than 1,000 people. Uh, dispersed, organized in groups of 20 with soldiers, I mean, people ready to fight, and especially good technicians. And it's incredible what was, this is the true unknown story of October Revolution, what was happening weeks before the revolution, when they were getting ready. The government, Kerensky, all them, none of them expected this. And this bill, for example, every morning in front of the central post office, groups of Bolsheviks came and ran up and down the stairs and so on. And people simply didn't know it. They thought, are they crazy or whatever? The same for electricity and so on and so on. So in the night before the October Revolution, Trotsky did it. It was over in one night. All these knots of power were under his control and the game was over. Then all that, you know, Stormic Winter Palace, blah, blah, there was, that was a comedy. I mean, Kerensky and the army, they knew revolution is coming. It was an incredible event, October Revolution, because they knew and they were still getting ready for the traditional confrontation. Gather the army here, people here to protect the parliament. Trotsky just ignored that, said, who cares about that? Control this and all, everything else will be thrown into disarray. Why am I mentioning this? You can guess. Because I think that today, the situation is even more like that one. And the name of this machine, it's no longer railway this, that. It's simply the digital network. This is why I think today we not only need political organizations, like parties, maybe a new forum. We not only need mass crowd mobilization. We also need, I use with all the danger this implies, this term, narrow, fanatical, highly specialized units. Because everybody knows, especially those in power know it, that our societies function, uh, the life, the everyday exchange of our societies, electricity, water, food supply, everything, is to such an extent mediated through digital Networks that the one who controls that controls everything. And those in power are getting ready of it. 
there in China and so on, it's clear. But, you know, I don't like to mention China too much because we are doing the same thing. We just project it onto China as the evil one and so on. So I think that that's why we need, with all the mistakes he made, people like Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, and all that. The real struggle will take place at this. If we don't somehow regain control over the digital network, those in power will still have the possibility to block, to sabotage any kind of public disorder and so on and so on. One of the absolutely crucial struggles is this one. I'm not saying it is the exclusive struggle. I'm saying that more and more, uh, it's no longer, I even suspect that all that obsession with, you know, uh, uh, new nuclear arms race and so on and so on, they're not really doing that. We are now, you should know this, in the middle of the new arms race. It's not only that Trump wants to step out of it. They are all for, the, for a decade already in it. But it's not so much nuclear arms. It's they're obsessed with new supercomputers, digital control, and so on and so on. And uh, so, again, they know that, those in power know that uh, if, even if you have a, a big mass upheaval, if you suspend, if you sabotage, block the digital network, people are isolated, you can block it. So we have to prepare also for the struggle at this level. I don't know how, I don't have precise answer. I'm only saying that I am at the same time a pessimist and an optimist. Pessimist in the sense that the, the true utopia is to think that things can go on the way they go on now. You know, a little bit more Bill Gates approach, distribute help to third world, be friendly towards refugees, and we will somehow manage it. No, we will not. Uh, this is why, following my friend again, Alain, but you, I don't like this parallel between now and the mid-30s, fascism. I think a much better parallel is between today's era and uh, the decades before World War I. I read with interest this so-called uh, new Enlightenment optimists, you know, Steven Pinker, Enlightenment now, and so on. And many of their data are correct. For example, Steven Pinker insists never in the history of humanity were there so little wars as now. For the first time in the history of humanity, uh, obesity is a greater problem than hunger and so on. All this is true, but what moment are we approaching? Okay, first, this story of progress is not as simple as it appears. Because, look, uh, Pinker likes this statistic. Compare the state of things between now and then. Okay, let's take the Jews. Their position is now incredibly better than 100 years ago. 100 years ago, anti-Semitism was legal. You could publish all the books also in the West that you want. Now, anti-Semitism, at least in the Western countries, is prohibited. Jews have their own state and so on and so on. Okay, but unfortunately, in the middle, it was something called Holocaust. No, and, uh, 
no, none of this progress without Holocaust. But something else interests me, that uh, exactly the same situation there was, like today, like today's position of rational optimists, this new enlightenment, was among the majority of the people in, let's say, 1900 or 1910. They say, but wait a minute, for over half a century, we have more or less peace in Europe. Incredible progress. You know what happened in the second half of 19th century? Uh, 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 general election, the right to vote expanded, uh, uh, suffragette movement, women to vote, trade unions recognized, religious freedoms. And it was an incredible progress. But nonetheless, World War I happened. And I think, unfortunately, we are in a similar situation today. Where our and isn't this clear? It's exactly like that time. All the big powers are, in some sense, preparing for war. And uh, uh, the tragedy is this one. At that time, you could still adopt a brutal Leninist attitude and say, okay, let's have a war, it will enable the revolution. Now we cannot any longer, <laughs> the war will be too horrible for that. We can only hope that some kind of a, it's no longer, let's have war, war will enable the revolution. No, it's only some kind of revolution that will prevent war. So what will happen? Don't lose hope. I think that, uh, no, lose hope. I don't like cheap hope. In the sense of, you know, you know my old joke that I use eternally also in my new book. I say this proverb, the situation is not so bad. Uh, there is uh, a light at the, other, at the end of the tunnel. You know my joke. Of course there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's another train uh, <laughs> moving towards us. But uh, I think that uh, I simply, I, am, I believe that Gradually, through more ecological catastrophes, uh, uh, even hopefully they will not be so radical, or refugee problems, or people being aware how they are manipulated through biogenetics, digital media, that some kind of resistance will emerge. I am not totally a pessimist here. Now you will say, but Trump and so on. Trump is for me precisely a preemptive strike, a sign that things are changing, that change is possible. Now, I will not conclude with any praising of Trump. Be serious, he is a nightmare. But nonetheless, I will be open. One thing I almost admire in Trump, how he knows how to dare and break the rules. I had a talk in Switzerland with an American diplomat, quite by chance, who was anti-Trump, and he told me what Trump knows to do. You know, in every political process, you have explicit rules, laws, what Congress can do, this, that. But these laws are only alive, they only work with implicit rules, unwritten customs. You do this like this, you're expected. Trump is a master in breaking these implicit customs. The way he, you, you see, like nominating uh, Kavanaugh or whatever. Obama could have done it already, but he was too considerate. 
He was convinced by, the, uh, by those who came, no, you cannot proceed too fast, you are, it's not done like that, and so on and so on. For me, uh, the predominant left today is still afraid to take risks. I'm not saying break the law. I'm saying follow the law, and this is much more radical often. Follow the law, but break, violate the implicit conformist rules of how you practice the law. And here we should absolutely learn for, from Trump. Be more daring, risk it. In politics, you don't proceed. Here I like Lenin who mocked German social democrats. He wrote that, I don't know how it is here, but in Germany, even when I was young, to enter a train station, you had to buy something, it was called a platform ticket or what. Even if you didn't want to board the train, just to wait for somebody, no? And he said, Lenin, that social democrats, if they want to make a revolution and occupy the train station, they will be, take care of first buying the platform tickets to be, no? Don't think like that. In successful radical acts, create their own success in the sense that they are risky, but if they succeed, they retroactively legitimize themselves. If, and you take, now we'll say, but what if it doesn't work? Eh, you have to take a risk, you know. And this, again, will be more and more needed. The only true utopia today is the utopia that if we just go on, as already said, like this, somehow we will manage. No, we will not manage. Radical changes will be necessary. Don't be afraid of them. I'm sorry if I was 10 minutes too long, but that's life. Thank you very much. Now, uh, I was told, I barely see, I was told that there are two microphones there, and, uh, okay, since people accuse me of being a right-winger, I will proceed like this, and I will begin on the right. So, one, one, if it's okay with you. One, 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 please. The Hi. blue, blue, um, blue sweater-bearded guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were talking about some of these like long-term issues, like ecological problems, which yeah. the negative effects are, you know, 50 years or 100 years down the line. Um, what kind of social changes do you think, or political changes, do you think would be needed to, for us to be able to keep those uh, in mind, or to be able to have an effect on those? Because capitalist systems. You know, they care about things on the quarter by quarter level or election by election level, and that doesn't really work with these longer-term issues that kind of have, like, a big impact? It's a difficult question because I don't have a concrete answer. All I can say is that... Now, I will say something horrible, which you may consider doubt, but you mentioned this quarter by quarter or election by election. Mm -hmm. I, I think that even a new form of mobilization, international, will have to be found, which will not be immediately depending on our today's sense of logic of parliamentary democracy. I'm not any playing, don't be afraid, any Stalinist game of <laughs> true people's democracy. I'm just saying this. Are you aware that, and I'm talking about our political democracies, an effectively functioning democracy 
is only possible against the background of a certain basic ideological homogeneity. We must agree on many basic procedures. That's why I think if you ask me, even you in the United States here, if you are from here, I don't know, are in a dangerous moment, this split now between, let's say, Bernie Sanders and Trump is too strong to be contained in a simple electoral process. Why? Because ultimately there is no compromise here. One side has to win. It's, the struggle is much stronger. So what I am saying is that uh, uh, some kind of transnational bodies with a strong executive power to prevent this false ecology, which is ecology of protecting just ourselves. For example, I was a couple of years ago in, how do you pronounce it, Island on Iceland, the country whose capital is Reykjavik, is... Iceland. Iceland. Iceland, okay. And they, they had a big movement about, they want to build some phosphate, whatever, phosphate, metal, uh, metal manipulation, uh, elaboration factory, which would be bad for their coast, which is otherwise extremely clean and so on. They said no. And I told them, but they're ecologists. I attacked them in a TV debate. They invited me. I told them, ah, so for you it's okay to build it somewhere else, you know. Just no, we want our island there clean and so on. This attitude of we, no, it's not enough to say we don't want it here. It's we don't want it in general or where, how do we do it? We need to learn a global approach. Let me give you another example of this ethical revolution. I've written about it. My friend who is otherwise a right-winger, but an intelligent one, Peter Sloterdijk, the German guy. He said that, are we aware to what extent, till now, our entire ethics is an ethics of war, of sacrifice. We live our ordinary lives, earn money, pleasures, but the true ethical test is war. Are you ready to sacrifice your life for your country? This is the ultimate ethical act. So, uh, and um, Hegel consequently conceptualized this. He said this is the paradox, that our entire ethical life within the country has at its foundation, it's the ultimate ethical act, war, which is internationally returned to barbarism. In today's global society with ecological dangers, what, whatever, we have somehow to overcome this Ethics. And the only way I see it is just through gradual awareness, because I don't think incidentally we have half a century, if you ask mm -hmm. me. I think less. It will be, you know, maybe it's already even happening, we are just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. This gradual change. Look, forget about drought in Africa. Look what's happening in northeastern Siberia, where that permafrost is melting. And you know that more of this, what are those bad gases that out of car fumes they come? Uh, Carbon dioxide? Yeah. You know that though from that melting of permafrost, more this dioxide mm -hmm. is already going yeah. into the air than all the cars combined and so on. We are already in such tremendous changes. So I think that literally some kind of global emergency state will be needed. It will come... 
I don't worry about will it come or not. I just worry that maybe it will come too fast. But you know what literally demoralizes me? How the rich people are already aware of it. I have a friend in New Zealand who told me, you know how many rich people are already buying properties in New Zealand? Because they think if it's a global ecological catastrophe, they are even far away, three hours flight south, even from Australia, it's the safest place, and so on. So, again, I think that it's not just more democracy. It is more democracy, but also, something horrible to say, a more, a stronger, even more authoritarian state power. It's, I don't have an easy answer here. Sorry. For, okay. Thank you. I move to the left. Is there anybody there? Yes, yep. here. Please. Um, so the Treaty of the European Union states very vaguely uh, security measures, and I was wondering if you think that the EU has a ca the capacity to form a united military, or if it's more uh, probable that it will devolve into either state factions or um, no, I, if you're asking me about European Union, yes. I must tell you openly my big skepticism about mm -hmm. it. I don't have any illusions about it. European Union is so impotent. Look how it miserably failed in all the tests. Refugees, uh, 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 Catalonia crisis, and so on. It's, and what, what gives me hope is that it's still to such an incredible extent the target of all others. It's almost an obsession of Putin and Trump combined to ruin European Union. Whenever there is something that will weaken European Union, Putin is at it. Catalonia, Putin supported secession. Brexit, Putin supported Brexit. Even now in Macedonia, you know, it was a very sad event. They have this long conflict for the name of the state. Greece doesn't want to allow Macedonians to be called Macedonians because they claim this is an ancient Greek name. Macedonians are also too arrogant. They try to reappropriate the historical legacy which is effectively Greek and not theirs. Because the Greek ancient Macedonians, Alexander the Great and so on, they were ethnically not today's Macedonians who are Slavs, who arrived later. And so if you go to Skopje, you have there a big statue of Alexander the Great, big statue of uh, Philip the Great. Okay, finally they arrived at a solution that it's a stupid one, but a compromise acceptable for that Macedonia should be called Northern Macedonia. And Russia puts all its machinery in Macedonia and it Greece against it for very egotist reason. Because if this happens, then probably Macedonia will, can join. Now it was blocked by Greece, the European Union, and that's bad news for Russia. But what I'm saying is this absolute, ob almost obsession with, uh, with, with the danger of united Europe. Even, for example, John Bolton, your greatest strategist. No? <laughs> you notice how he threatened the, the... Many of my friends dismiss the Hague criminal court as just another imperialist blah blah. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, Trump and John Bolton, they hate it. John Bolton threatened again. We don't recognize it. We are ready to attack it if it imprisons any Americans and so on and so on. So this negative reason that 
The European Union is so hated. It's what gives me a little bit of a hope that maybe, maybe, although I doubt, something will happen. No, it's more an ideal of what could have happened. I have no illusions here than the actually existing uh, Europe. So, uh, again? Hi. Um, I heard you second time now uh, talking against Lacan and uh, what he Lacan. said about hysterics. Yes, I remind you that there are three discourses that serve the master. The master's discourse, the perverted discourse, and the hysterics discourse. Actually, the capitalist discourse is very much hysteric. I was wondering... Where did you... Uh, in in seven or 17 that you're walking away from. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you that maybe if you dropped your Hegelianism and humanism, you would not end up supporting, for example, you know, hysteric masters like Avital Ronel, you know, and maybe you would become Lacanian again or even Althusserian. What do you think about that? And, and do you well, think uh, that it's time to kind uh, of balance the hysteric and perverts discourse? Because that's where the analyst discourse is. No, no, no. I have in my new book, again, a lot of it, but... I think that, no, 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 where did you find this? Uh, it's absolutely clear that Lacan, even precisely in his seminar 17 and so on, he emphasizes all scientific uh, inventions are hysterical in that nature. Hysteria is... Scientific, the, I mean... Sorry? No, he's not very uh, liking of that scientific hysteria. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, no. Lacan is not a postmodernist. He absolutely believes science touches the real From and so on. From analytic dialectical discourse, not from a hysteric discourse. No, okay, I would love to enter this, but nonetheless, again, uh, what is absolutely clear in Lacan, sorry, which is for you then the good discourse, the analyst? Analyst, yes. Yeah, but the only way to analyze discourse is through hystericization. It's not through perversion, it's not through master. The analyst discourse is, I think, it's clear, a twist in the hysterics discourse. It's Based on that, because... Or quarter turn and perverts discourse. Sorry? Or quarter turn, quarter turn, quarter turn yeah. and perverts discourse. It gets you both ways, it gets you to analyze. No, 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 but if you read Lacan clinically closely, he says that to even begin analyzing a pervert, you should, uh, you should uh, hystericize him. Lacan follows here Freud, who says in a beautiful way, because many people think that perversion is like your unconscious is out there in the open, you do everything. But Lacan follows Freud, who says that nowhere is the unconscious so inaccessible as in perversion. Perversion is a repression at its worst. What I tend to rehabilitate a little bit is... Master's discourse, if you ask me. I think that uh, today, to horrify you again, we, and Lacan was aware of this, uh, we need a new figure of a master. And master is not, don't confuse master with the one who knows better what, what is good for us and so on. Master is for me the enabling master. A true master does not tell you what you want. A true master, I'm aware of all, like, uh, of all uh, um, Mao's horrors, but you know when Mao says, yes, you have the right to rebel, that's a true gesture of the master. The master's message is, yes, you can do it. And at the end, then you get rid of the master. A proper master waits to be killed, and so on then. But what I'm saying, I'm so sad we don't have to go... 
further into this because no, I'm not afraid to answer what you briefly hinted at uh, at the end about uh, supporting Avital and so on. Didn't you notice that I didn't really support her? I wrote in my third installment or what, she made a serious mistake, blah, blah, blah. What really annoyed me is this, how, I just say, let's look at all of it. Letters between him, her, and so on, all the exchange, and see what's happening there. And again and again, I get the answer, no, it doesn't matter, she was his master, that's decide everything, and so on, and so on. And, uh, and the other thing that annoys me a little bit is, look what the guy was doing to her. While writing passionate love letters while at the same time mocking her. And when confronted with, why are you doing it, he says, it was necessary for my career. No, fuck off. I don't accept this, that you simply accept this. And as I wrote there, I will not tell you the name, I found something like this again and again in American academia, my God. I quote, I will not give you the name of who it is. Once I had a debate with a feminist, big, not even feminist, uh, gender theorist, who attacked me in the usual way. You Lacanians are uh, part of the ruling patriarchal discourse where we are the truly subversive. I told him, look at all the posts of strong academic power that you hold. Show me one Lacanian in the United States who has some serious academic power. The answer of this guy was Drusilla Cornell. Then I said, listen, but because at that point I was at a certain conference when Drusilla Cornell ferociously attacked Lacan from the Ridian standpoint. I said, but Drusilla Cornell, I appreciate her, but she's openly the Ridian attacking Lacan. And the reply was, no, it doesn't mean anything, she just has to do this for her career. Okay. <laughs> the first irony was how, no, uh, the first irony was how, first, the claim is that we Lacanians are establishment, and then you have to pretend to be a Deridian. <laughs> this about, well, you sound no. like a Deridian with your hysteric discourse. Sorry? You sound like a Deridian yourself. Deridian? No! I think that Derrida is a perfect university discourse. Because this is the basic, this is what I reproach deconstruction with. The work is never done. Analyze more. Go on. Go on. What I like in Lacan is precisely the idea analysis is not an infinite process. At a certain point you say, stop, it's over. It's finite. It's not this infinite. You know, also in the interpretation of the works of art, I hate this profession. Like it may, oh, Joyce, you can read it for hundreds of years, and so on and so on. That's why I hate Joyce, and I prefer Beckett. But that's another story. <laughs> I, I mean, I would very much like to go. I'm sorry. Okay, left wingers again. I'm not going to pretend I understood all of that. But if um, yeah. if uh, paranoia you, can is I tell knowledge, you something to your own good. Yes. It's nice that you say this because many of my critics. Pretend that they understand, but they don't. Okay, I, I, I know, I've, re I've read a couple. Um, but if paranoia is a form of knowledge, as I, as I believe Lacan says, then uh, I have uh, become very paranoid by this uh, talk today. Uh, in, a, in a good sense, I hope. Um, yeah. Now, I, I, I want to ask about uh, 
agriculture, uh, because I think that that's something that we don't talk about. And it sounds like a bit of a kind of um, folk politics uh, notion, idea. Uh, but uh, I think agriculture is maybe the repressed today in our political discourse, because agriculture um, is in some sense the very fuel on which our, uh, our, our society is, is based, more or less. And yet, um, and to, to create a direct homology between, uh, between uh, Marxists and, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, bourgeois uh, political economy, uh, the, the bourge- uh, both, of, uh, both of them were structured by urbanization, more or less, if, if I'm not uh, incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think, in some sense, the, the, um, the move towards urbanization away from the feudal state uh, based on agricultural production was what fueled capitalism, fueled the rise of capitalism. But we're now moving away from the production of agriculture, moving away from the consider, uh, mm-hmm. consideration of agriculture as a, as a critical problem today in our, in our culture and in our, uh, in our political discourse. And um, just to bring it to today's politics, in a sense, you might say that the uh, cons- conservative right, the alt-right, yeah. Who have been left behind are directly related to the um, to the, uh, the, pe- the 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 once part of our agricultural society that is no longer agricultural. No, no, I got it. Sorry, today. leave him. My God. Huh? Uh, I, yeah, I apologize. Um, uh, yeah. So, so I guess that's that's more or less my. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't mean to. Yeah. Pre- no, yeah. no, no. But my answer may surprise you. I think that first, unfortunately, we are so deep into this industrialization that in the present state of things, without killing half the population on the earth and so on, any return direct to ancient agriculture will mean catastrophe. For example, a friend from Bangladesh explained to me, why do they have such floodings there? Because people up there in Bhutan and so on stick to old agriculture, but with modern healthcare, there are too many of them, they are cutting too many woods and so on and so on. But another point that I want to make. I spoke recently with a German ecologist who convinced me in a totally crazy idea that from the standpoint of earth pollution and so on, the best thing... The worst thing that can happen to us is if we all move to live in individual houses in the countryside and so on and so on. Ecologically, the best thing is that as many of us as possible should be concentrated in big, dirty cities where we are polluting each other (laughs) and allow, like, this is basically, some friends explained to me, and allow the majority of nature to be relatively unpolluted. I was told, for example, that this is the Japanese formula. They have 30% of land, these gigantic megacities around Tokyo, around, uh, around uh, Yokohama and so on, or Osaka. 30%. But the 70%, they keep it very much under control. It's... Uh, nature, small farmers, forests, and so on and so on. So as a short-term solution, if you ask me, I am, I am almost for this, more alienation. 
In, in between, in, that's for me today, the, the only way to save some kind of a peaceful, natural reproduction. Because again, I'm always horrified by this idea, move to the countryside and build a sustainable house there. As some architects explained to me, those famous sustainable houses, to build them, you spend more energy, you pull more, and so on, and so on. I, uh, I see it's a real problem, what you are saying. I'm just think, I just think that, and it's maybe a too tragic view, you can convert me, that the natural, that the, our earth is already so much polluted, destabilized, through industrial corruption, and so on, and so on, that I don't see any direct way back. Without I, I, I agree for the most part. So what I'll, would I'll be your solution? One last thing is, would you I accept think, this? Let's concentrate people in big, dirty cities. I think that that is almost the reigning ideology of our time because that, that's mainly what we've been doing is concentrating in big urban centers, whereas the urban centers are what's taking up most of the resources themselves. That's where most people are concentrated. Yeah, but uh, do you imagine, nonetheless, if you have a big urban center... You know, you spend, it's very vulgar what I will say now, you spend much less on heating, on all that, because we are much, it's much more expensive to, to, uh, to, to organize our level of standard in isolated country houses. I, this, I absolutely agree with you. But a, a dispersion of, uh, of, of social organization is what I think needs to be considered and we, uh, we often we think of one or the other. I agree but still I would emphasize uh, also some higher level concentration of power because I think again that maybe with future uh, ecological catastrophes again you will have large, to have larger larger international co we will have to move hundreds of millions of people I think. Thank you. Sorry let's yes Last question. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, okay. It's terror. It's terror, but okay, please. How you doing tonight, Slavoj? Oh, yeah. That's, you know what? what? You're right. Hey. Sorry. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Thank you. I, they, they, uh, I didn't get what's happening now. Uh, they want a woman to speak, and... Yeah. What? So sorry? I'm going to... No, no woman has spoken. So I'm going to hystericize a bit, if you don't mind. Course, Sorry, you mean? I'm going to hystericize a bit, if you don't mind. Can you speak? Do you hystericize have... a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And make sure you get my good side. So we already got the thing about the hysterics discourse versus the analyst discourse. And also, you, there's no centome, which is very important, I think, in really bringing everything together. Isn't that really like Lacan's solution, the Santome? You know, he, he talks about it from Seminar 17 implicitly mm -hmm. onwards until he starts playing with knots, you know. Um, but I think one of the other things that, that I want to talk about is social democracy, which you seem to like but not like. Um, exactly. which all of us do. But there is the thing that you don't talk about, which really 
as a Lacanian, why don't you? The drive, the, the capitalist drive for money, capital is the object ah, is what we're supposed to be driving towards, and we can never, never get it. So it's the logic of capital that we need to get rid of, and it's not just simply replacing it, a state with another state, you know, the, the Leninist model. In the Cultural Revolution, which is, I think we see, I'm sure Badiou and Lazarus and people like that agree with the moving from the politics, from the objective, the state and history combined together in exteriority with um, politics in command, politics as a subjective, as thought of the people. So we think about all that. Give me, uh, this is a nice formula, but can you just give me a little bit of a hint, an example of how this is done? Because I'm afraid of these principled formulas, then I cannot translate them into... Uh, the revolution in the Philippines, the New People's Army, the Communist Party of the Philippines. In the red zones, they've been providing medical help for the peasants in the liberated zones. Um, they um, issue divorces, which is illegal in the Philippines. The red zones are the only places with divorces. So they're pushing together progressive women's rights, land reform, gay rights, because a lot of the members of the Philippines of the Communist Party and the New People's Army are gay or, you know, LGBT. Okay, Q plus, no, I'm all for this. But I, again, the problem I see is how people always give me, in, 10 years ago it was fashionable to mention Chiapas in Mexico and so on. And I always saying, yes, this works at a certain level. Can it take over all of society? Well, you know, and whole. this is not a rhetorical question. I, uh, uh, I, I think that, no, I will just formulate my position now clearly. I think, I think that if anything, it's horrible what I will say now, I know. The, uh, the, uh, the left should rediscover the state, a strong state. Why? Sorry? Why? Because the only thing that can save us is a strong state or even trans-state organization. I so, don't believe in this local organization, self-management, when people organize themselves. This goes up to a certain level. So if we think of it dialectically, Sorry? If, we, if we think of it dialectically, if we have a term and a term in its place, the state is the place of the term. The state is the bourgeois society. It's the local, the locality of capitalism existing, of the locality of the logic of capital. So if we continue to have a state, we continue to have this place where bourgeois society is. Okay, but... Uh, uh, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, you know, uh, my first reproach, again, would have been that all this attempt at however you call them, let's call it, maybe I'm misreading you, local self-organization... Mm -hmm where people organize, uh, organize themselves to cover for their needs and so on and so on. Uh, I think that uh, this is what fascinates me in modern society. I want to, again, I will say now some, a thing which is even more horrible, maybe for you. I want to rehabilitate alienation. Alienation in the sense of 
I want to live in a world where I don't know everybody. Three-thirds of the people fuck off the way you live and so on. I, I, and I think this is our only reality. It would be a nightmare to live, in, for me, in a closed society where we understand each other. True tolerance, for me, is not the tolerance of a neighbor whom you love and know. It's the tolerance of a neighbor whom you don't understand, maybe even despise, it horrifies you, and so on and so on. So I think that your model works for certain local, works up to a certain point, as it were. So, and uh, you, you know who also tried this? It shocked me. Look, I supported them publicly, I love them, Podemos in Spain. That was their great motto. Forget about big ideologies, there are bullshit. Listen to concrete people, to their worries, and so on and so on. And then when they come close to power, they somehow disintegrated. They somehow, their, uh, their electoral manifesto was a very modest social democracy. In other words, what I would like to hear from you is, obviously these small, these communities, that's wonderful, they do divorce, all that up and down. Uh, what kind of a state do they demand or can they survive without a state? You know, I think that even Marxism is here a little bit too, a little bit too, fast in its theory. Marxism, I think, simply doesn't have a theory of the state. And if you want to be Lacanian here, look at the ambiguity of Lacan here. He, he is even too pass You know, Lacan formulates the problem, how to break out of the logic of capital, but his only consistent answer is the position of a saint. He literally mentions this in seminar 17 and later. That the only one who, uh, saint, of course, not in the moral sense, but in this saints and the saint at the same time, excrement and so on, madman. No, sorry, just to finish, and then I will give you the. My problem with, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with this abstract, uh, uh, with this, uh, uh, my problem is that when you have this self-local democracy movement. I claim that, whatever you call it, I claim that without an element, now I'll say something horrible, without an element of healthy alienation, it always leads at the end to the violent return of a certain figure of a master. And not the master I would like. This is my experience already. That's what horrified me in... For example, all those communes, I'm old enough to, not to live in them, but to see them in the late 60s, you know. They were very anti-authoritarian. But then, if you look closely at them, you always discover that there is one guy or a couple of guys who terrorized all the others on behalf of we really should prevent any authoritarianism and so on and so on. No, no, no. What, what interests me is... How do your communities where they organize their life the way you describe? 
I don't believe that you can simply say then this, the dream is that these communities then collaborate, participate, build larger communities, and so on and so on. That's not strong enough for today. The world is so united today with global market and so on that you have to, the only way to combat global market is to fight it also at a global level. But is it not all united? I think that's one of the key points in Lacan's logic in sexuation. Not all. In Lacan's logic of sexuation. Ah, I, I would all. love to go in this direction. I'll give Sorry you my email. if you, I don't follow this. But for me, now, me and my friends wrote books on it. When you say non all, but non all for Lacan does not mean that there is something outside. Non all means there is no exception. Lacan is very clear here. Lacan's non-all, the second part of non-all is there is no exception. And I think this is the whole point. That's why I think, for example, when Lacan speaks about feminine sexuality, he is totally misread as if non-all of women wins. Women are not totally integrated into symbolic part of them, remains outside, and so on and so on. So we would have to go very deep into this. What, and it's a very contested topic. What did Lacan exactly mean by non-all? And here, if you want, the other guy mentioned this. Yes, I am in some sense critical of Lacan in the sense that and he admits it, if you really read closely his last seminars, very last, where the whole seminar is five pages or what, it's clear that he concedes a defeat. He reaches a certain limit around Angkor, and then he looks for a different ways out. For example, knots, all those graphs, and so on. And at the end, in a very tragic way, he admits a failure. So Lacan is a very unfinished in the sense that tragically open thinker. This is why I disagree with those Lacanians who are looking in last Lacan for some secret, you know, what did he whisper when he was dying? Was there some final wisdom? No, it's much more tragic, it was not. And I think backwards, if you look at great philosophers, I think that this is the fate of most of them. The greatest Hegel is not the last Hegel. The greatest Plato is not the last Plato. The greatest Plato is Parmenides, where he gets into a total mess. And then after Parmenides, he just tries to bring some order but fails. I'm sorry we cannot go into it, but it's a wonderful topic because... Can I just point out yeah. just one little thing you said? Because I love puns and... Lacan, because I love puns and Lacan said, you said the thing Lacan left is Lacan's not. Okay, yes, but, but you, know, you know that in the, his last seminars he precisely denounced uh, knots as a fal- false way. He totally rejects it in, at the very end. And I think the whole problem is First, even to formulate what was Lacan struggling with in the last 10 years of his life. But that's okay. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I would love to go into this dogmatic Lacanian direction. Although I have problems there because of my Hegelian descent. Okay, so um, I'm sorry. Sorry. Thank you so very much. I think we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much for this. uh, No, I'm grateful to you. And I would love to... 
sorry, but seriously, you know what was the problem here? And this is my usual mistake. I should have made it clear. Is it more politics Marx and even with Marx? We can talk about Marx at a much higher uh, conceptual level and so on. Because I think that the more fundamental problem of Marx, and Lacan was aware of it, is that Marxian notion of communism is nonetheless a dream of keeping capitalism without the capitalist object. Marx sees clearly that capitalism introduces a certain dynamic. But then his idea is that then this dynamic is thwarted by the obstacle, capitalist form, appropriation of surplus value. But then Marx's conclusion is, if we drop this capitalist form, we get an even more explosive, pure development. We don't get it, I think. I think that, that Marx should have been more radical and that the way he, Marx, imagined communism is capitalism without its obstacle. Communism, uh, what Marx imagined as capitalism is, I think, it's a communist fantasy. It's a fantasy of communism without its, uh, without its obstacle. And this is, for me, the absolutely crucial element of uh, what Marx calls, sorry, what Lacan calls plus de jouir, surplus enjoyment. That it's the constitutive, it's the constitutive obstacle. It's something that apparently is an obstacle, but you take away the obstacle and you lose the thing itself. Okay, this is very speculative. I'm sorry we don't have time, but uh, I, I must... I will not be bluffing now. I want sincerely to apologize of this, a little bit of confusion in my talk, you know. Too political in the false sense of bad politics, too concrete, and at the same time this escapades into pure theory. But I did, so what I did is I tried, as we say cynically in Slovene, we have a proverb, when you try to sit between two chairs, you usually fall down in the... <laughs> Whole, you know, so I hope to meet you again and maybe we can risk a little bit more of a theory. I'm grateful to you. Very much.